At this time, I'm going to have two of my helpers come up. If I could have Caden Versamac come up and Brooke Bloom, please. All right. Um, the reason I'm having them come up is we have a thing in – this is something we always do in CP Kids. Um, I am not the best way to get the kids' attention. Sometimes they need other kids helping me out to kind of sustain attention. So right now, you get to look at the adorable cuteness. You can come a little bit closer, Brooke. All right, you get to hear the adorable cuteness that comes out of their mouth and thus set up my sermon and give me far greater success. But what we're going to do is I'm going to share a story later about something I broke, and I broke a lot of stuff growing up, but I decided to ask these two a story of something they broke. And we're actually, Caden, if you wouldn't mind switching with Brooke, we're going to have Brooke go first. So, Brooke, what was the thing that you you looked back on? You said, you know, I can remember breaking this. Um, my my brother's Lego house. Oh, your brother's Lego house. Been there, been there. Okay, now what happened with this Lego house? Well, it was like this big, and I sat in my brother's room, and I just wanted to build something, but he's hogging all the Legos, so I just broke it. All right, so he was building, yeah, I'll, well, if you can be a little bit louder. He was building a gigantic Lego house and hogging all of the Legos, and that's a problem. And so Brooke, wanting to have some of these Legos, came in and broke it, correct? Did you use your feet, or was this just a tear apart with hands kind of thing? Well, we, I took, like, I, I figured that I could just hold the house, but then I just decided to crush it. <laughs> oh, she just crushed it. All right. Like some kind of giant Japanese monster crushed it with her arms. Now, what did you do after this? Well, I took all the Legos I needed and I brought it downstairs and finally my brother found out that I had part of the Lego house uh-huh. and I just, he just ran upstairs and I just decided maybe to make him one. Okay. And um, after I started making it, he kind of felt better. Okay. And did you apologize too? Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Brooke. So you broke that. You can go sit back down. Thank you. I don't have any prize for you. Um, So after it was broken, her way of making amends was to help out. Now, Caden, what did you break? I broke my um, car. I stepped on it and... um, and so my um, sister, um, she she walked up, and I don't know how, but it somehow got stuck up her nose. So um, right, let's, let's let him deal with that one step at a time. Okay, so to understand what's happening, he told me the story a little bit beforehand. He had how big in terms of can you position how big this car was? Oh, so it's a matchbox car. Apparently, it was a convertible with a little piece of glass, and he stomped on it oh okay okay so it was just a general step and through some means of happenstance it lodged in her nose to which you're thinking this is hilarious no what what then happened uh um she couldn't breathe through her nose because then it would just like um fall more back and so we had to like take her somewhere and and um so she had to get it like pulled out, I think. No, actually she like sneezed it out and it and it came out of her nose. All right, I didn't know about that part. Okay, you can go sit down too. Okay, yeah. He was telling me this, and I'm like, this is comic gold. Step on a car, your sister picks up a piece and shoves it in her nose. That's amazing. Like everybody will love this. Then he started talking about emergency room and I was like 
All right, everybody will laugh, then feel a little bit bad, and then we'll recognize that she's fine. She's fine. She's got a grumpy face on right now. But she's fine. She's doing good. She also helps out a lot. So all of that is to share with you a reality, and that's children break things. You've probably all encountered this. The I was surprised. Apparently, Johnny, I asked Johnny, he was the first person I asked, Johnny, if you would wave your hand, thank you. He has never broken anything. Now, I don't know if he has some kind of magic device that allows him to make his parents think he hasn't broken anything, but from what I understand, children break things. And the issue is not the fact that it's broken. That's okay. David's used to this. He is used to things being broken in his house. That's not the problem. The problem is what happens after the thing is broken, how everyone responds, what occurs next. And the great thing about both of these stories is that Ella does not have a piece of glass still stuck up her nose, and Brooke sought to be repentant and repair the relationship with her brother after she had broken that. And the question is, when things are broken, what do you do? What happens? What is your recourse? What is your course of action? And we're going to get back to that later with the story of something I broke. But for now, turn with me to Romans 3. We're going to read verses 9 through 20. That is our text for the day. And as, as, I was, as I was prepping for this sermon, all I could picture was some large mustachioed man reading some of these verses because they're so strong, so powerful. But just so you understand what's happening, Paul starts off in verse 9 describing the situation. And then in 10 through 18, he quotes several Old Testament scriptures. He quotes, quotes about six different sets of scriptures to explain the reality of mankind. And then he comes back and confronts the Jews. Um, the issue at hand, as we're reading this, is that in the church in Rome, there were Jewish and there were Gentile, belie- Gentile believers, and there was a conflict, a racial, a cultural, a huge conflict that was happening within their church. And at times, the Jewish people felt, we are better than you. We need to be, you need to listen to us because we are better. So that is the state that Paul is speaking into. And he says the following, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Right off the bat, Paul says something extremely controversial to the Jews. He says it right in verse 9. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. He tells them the reality of their situation right as it begins. And this is seemingly a conflict with the statement he makes in verse 1. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. So in verse 1, he says, What is the advantage of being Jewish? It is a great advantage. You have the scriptures, you have the oracles, you have the prophets, you have circumcision, you have the law, you have the covenants. There is a great advantage. And then in verse 9, he says, but are we any better off? He says, no. Paul is presenting them with the reality that as advantage as they are through that which they have, that they are equally broken. That they are equally in a state of condemnation. That all the advantage they have in itself will not save them. And in 10 through 18, he clarifies the reality. I'm not going to work through 10 through 18. Because all it does is say, we are condemned. Every person in all of creation is condemned, that there is none who are righteous. And what Paul wants to make clear to the Jewish believers is that they are part of mankind, that they are a portion of that, and that they fit in that same group. As advantaged as they are, as blessed as they are, they still have the reality of the looming judgment of God over them. Now, the reality of their position is not one we should overlook. We shouldn't just look at this and say, man, that's, it's really good that Paul wrote to the Romans in this way so he could confront the realities, the problems, the struggles in their church and teach them rightly. We need to look at this text and learn how to apply it to ourselves. Consider it this way. Do you think of yourself as better off than other sorts of people, that you have an advantage. I think it's easier for parents to do this. Do you look at your kids and say, my kids are better off. They have better access to Bibles. They have better schools than I had. They have more caring family surrounding them. If you're, a part, if you're a very strong member of, of our church, if you are a regular attender, you might say, you know, my children go to CP Kids. My children attend Awana. I know my children have their own study Bible. I have watched over and cared for my kids and made sure that they know that they are a part of church that teaches about Christ. Or maybe it just might be yourself. You say, I am a strong volunteer in my community. I know a lot of people who love Christ. I'm a part of this church. I am advantaged. That reality is a blessing. 
That is a great truth. That is what Paul is saying the Jews had. They had advantages. They had blessings. They had graces. But what those advantages mean is not what is most important. The advantages do not mean that you are saved. The advantages are means of grace. They are, they are things that can help you to know Christ better. They are things to bring you closer to God, to grow in relationship with them. But they by themselves will not save you. And that is what Paul is seeking to communicate to the Jewish Romans. You have these advantages. You have learned so much about who God is, what his righteousness looks like. You have looked at the law, studied it, brought it close to yourself. But this thing you lack, you do not realize how much you need the gospel. You do not realize how much you need Christ. You do not realize what was needed to be done for you in order for you to be brought into a restorative relationship with God. You had so much, but you lacked everything. Growing up, the, the reality of advantage and disadvantage was quite common in my, in my elementary school. I've made comment before about how short I was. Um, in fact, Johnny, if you would stand up again for me, Johnny. All right, Johnny is a young man, looks great. I was Johnny's height when I was in high school. So that's, okay, you can sit back down. Johnny is not in high school, so that's a logical thing that he would be about that tall. But when I was a kid, I was the short kid. I was the smallest in the class, and I got by. I used my humor. I I managed to make it through. But one of my good friends, his name was Charles. I like to look at him, look back now and consider him Charles, the third grade giant. Charles, as long as I can remember, was the tallest kid in school. In, in third grade, I kid you not, he was already five foot tall. He was a big kid. The monkey bars, he would stand on the ground and hold on to them while all of us would dangle dangerously close to the sand, dangerously far from the sand. He was just this huge kid. When we would play basketball, he had an exceedingly large advantage because he could just swat everything down that we would shoot. It wasn't fair to be guarded by Charles. And it was great for him. He had this huge advantage. But there was a big problem. He was in third grade. As tall as he was at five foot tall, it's still five foot tall. He's still a third grader. That's not that grave a deal. If you were to say, want to play in the NBA and say, look at me, I'm the tallest kid in my grade. I should be able to be an NBA player. They would just say, you're a third grader and you're only five foot tall. That's great for where you are in your life. But you need to be much bigger. You need to be much stronger to fit in with us. And that's the reality of these advantages. As advantaged as the Jews were, it didn't compare to what they truly needed. They needed Christ. They needed something bigger. And so Paul, after showing them this, showing them that in their advantage, they still lacked what was necessary, he points to what they have. And he talks to them about about what they possess in verse 19 through 20, specifically the law. And he says the following. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, 
and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What Paul is doing here is he's telling them what they actually have. They looked at the law as their big advantage. They looked at the law as their blessing, and it was a blessing. It was such a blessing for a nation to have a code, to have a law. When God gave them a law, it was a grace for them to know what they had to measure up to, how they needed to act, and how they were to be righteous. But they took this blessing that they had, and they said it did things that it didn't do. See, the law did some specific things. It held them accountable. The law gave them a very clear set, a very clear dissemination of what it meant to be righteous. The problem was they weren't righteous. They would try their best, but they still would sin. They still would fall short. They couldn't be perfect. Additionally, the law condemns. A law in and of itself can do nothing but to condemn. It can't justify. It can't say, way to go, you did this right. It can only show you that which you did, which was wrong. And in doing that, it brought knowledge of sin. It showed them specifically how they were sinning. But the most important thing, the most utterly necessary thing that Paul wanted to make sure they realized was that the law itself could not make them righteous. They wanted to be righteous. They wanted to have a right relationship with God. They wanted to be the people of God who were walking properly. But the reality was, the only thing the law could do was show them that they were unrighteous. It could not, in and of itself, make them righteous. So while the law was a gift and a grace, it only showed them the reality of their sin. And their inability to perfectly and completely remove that. So what are we to do with this? Well, let me tell you a little story from my youth. Um, I broke a lot of things. Originally when I was writing this, I was going to say, I broke some things growing up. Well, I can't lie when I preach. I broke a lot of things when I was growing up. And one of the worst things was in our spare bedroom. And... um, what had happened is we had a spare bedroom that we just kind of, we just kind of kept toys and other th- kept our games in there. We didn't really use it. And one of the things my mom would keep in there were bags of clothes for Goodwill. So she would fill paper bags with a bunch of clothes for Goodwill, and then you'd stick them in the spare bedroom, and then somehow magically they would get to Goodwill. They, usually they just stayed in the, no offense mom, but usually they just stayed in the spare bedroom. Chrissy's laughing because she, she knows what's happening in this story. Um, these clothes would just stay there. And for some reason, my mom thought paper bags were stackable. I don't know about you, but paper bags are not stackable in my life. Um, but so, we had this spare bedroom, and what would happen is these bags would topple over. They'd just fall right down. And so sometimes you'd want to get into the spare bedroom, and you'd go into the door, and it would jam. So you'd think, I need <laughs> I need to push the door as hard as I can in order to get into the room. Well, this one time, we had a full-length mirror inside the room. Now, I can't remember if it was on the door or if it was just leaning up against the wall, but on this occasion, the mirror was right behind the door. And so 
I open the door and feel a push against the door. And I think, oh, these bags fell over again. So I push back, and it doesn't give. I'm like, man, I must be boxing up some toys or something. So I give a shoulder to the door as hard as I can. I don't remember how old I was. Um, old enough not to know better. Um, and so I push as hard as I can, and I just hear a shatter. Just the breaking of glass and just the shower of I don't know what happening behind the door. And I'm flabbergasted. And you just think to yourself, these, these stories of these kids, like, okay, you had a break. The Ella's was very bad. What do we do in this situation? I not only apologize for a mistake I make, but we take her to the hospital. I just had a room, a door full of glass, and not, cert- not a lot of certainty of what should be done. So I was looking back and thinking, you know, what do you do in that situation? What would I have done if, per se, I had had several friends with me when this had happened, and this glass had shattered, this mirror had shattered all over the floor? So I thought of three friends. I know it's hard to believe that I had three friends at that point, but just bear with me. The three friends were with me this day that I broke this glass. Friend one says, easy, just ignore it. You broke the glass. You just told me you don't really use this room very much. I'm pretty sure you could just leave the glass broken. It wouldn't be a big deal. You could ignore it, leave it hidden in this room, and you'd be fine. What's the worst that could happen? Well, you could step on it, get an infection. Your mom could discover it later, think, what in the world happened? I guess one of my mirrors just fell over. You could ignore it, but it's not really a great solution. You still have broken glass in your house, which is dangerous. So friend two says, no, I have the solution. He says, I'm gonna, let me run and get something. So he runs, he goes home, and he comes back, and he brings me the solution. He says, here you go. This is the solution to your problem. And I look at what it is, and I'm like, this is just a picture of the mirror. This isn't a solution. This is a picture of the mirror. To which he would respond, this is what it looked like, right? This is what your, your mirror looked like. Problem solved. To which I would say, but it's still broken. He could say, well, just take this picture and then piece it together. Put it, put it back together. Fix what you've broken. And it'll be all fixed. And I would reply again, it's still broken, though. Even if I... If you've seen a mirror, there's not supposed to be cracks and fractures. It's supposed to be a a whole thing. It's not going to do what it's supposed to do. But friend three says, hmm, I think I have it. He leaves and he comes back and he says, here, you can have my mirror. You can, this, this mirror will replace it. It'll be, it's, it's a better mirror, I think. And It'll suit you fine. And I look at it and say, whoa, this, this, is, an, this is a great mirror. This completely replaces the thing that was damaged and lost and broken. And this completely resolves my situation. This, these three friends were the situation that the Roman church was facing. They had those who just wanted to ignore sin. That there was sin and let's just ignore it, cover it up, sweep it under the rug, or just forget it's there. And it won't be an issue. Friend two says, I have the law. I have a picture of what 
it was supposed to look like, what your righteousness was supposed to look like. So just piece together righteousness, and you'll be fine. But that wouldn't solve the problem either. And then the third friend, our friend Paul, says, what you need is what Christ will give you. And Christ himself will give you a replacement to your righteousness. We'll give you a new righteousness that is not your own. That's the reality we face in this world. We have a broken relationship with God that in the garden it was perfect. There was a perfect relationship with God that existed between Adam and Eve and God. And through the fall, it was shattered. Just like our mirror, it was shattered and broken. And through the years, they would try and piece it together without being able to fully understand it until the law came and it showed them, this is how you put it together. But at the end of the day, as much law as they had, it still wasn't right until Christ came. And rather than just say, live with what you have, he gives us something better. He gives us something great so that we don't have to stick with this broken piece. Now, that statement can take us back to Romans 1, 15 through 17. The reality of the need of righteousness could take us back there. I'm actually going to change plans. We're not going to go there. If you'll turn with me to Colossians 2. I thought this was fitting. I thought this passage was fitting for today because Colossians 2 deals with the reality we will be coming upon pretty soon with the baptism service. And so it's a... It's a good passage to read, and we're going to read 6 through 15. And just consider the reality of what's happening in 3, 9 through 20 now with this. The reality of 3, 9 through 20 is that everyone is sinful, that they are all dead in their sins and their trespasses. Dave will go into this more next week with continuing in 321 through, I'm not sure where, but that will come up more next week. But 2... 6 through 15 shows us what we receive. And it says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He's establishing the reality that In the Colossian church, something similar is happening that also happened in the Romans church. People were deceiving them and telling them that they didn't need Christ. They needed something else. They needed the Jewish law. They needed to just be able to do whatever they wanted. They needed to not, they didn't need Christ. And so he's saying, don't let people deceive you. And this is why, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. What he's saying there is the reality of the covenant coming into the new covenant being brought in by Christ as Dave stated a few weeks back is not through the old covenant means of circumcision 
It's through the new covenant means of baptism to show that a person is in Christ is displayed in baptism. And baptism is simply like the ring on the finger when you get married. The ring that you have on your finger does not show, it does not represent the total reality of marriage. The covenant you enter into when you are getting married is what shows that reality. The ring is simply a symbol to declare you are married, that you are wed to this person. So is baptism. Baptism is not the covenant. It is not the seal that says this person is in Christ. It is like a ring. It demonstrates that which was accomplished in Christ Jesus, that Christ died to pay the penalty of our sin and raised to give us new life. And we, when we trust in him, when we place our faith in him, are entering into the same thing. He says in 13, And you, who were dead in your trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. To understand this last little portion, I want you just to, I just want you to consider your life. Now, you might be a person who says, I have a lot of advantages. I have so many advantages in my life. My children, if you are, if you are a young person in this life, in, in this in here right now, you might think of yourself, I have so many advantages. I was raised in the church. I've only ever known Christ. I've not had the pull of sin to take me away and cause me to do foolish things. I have been blessed. If you're a parent, you might be thinking, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you might be thinking, I'm so grateful for all the things that I have been able to do to protect my children. All the ways that I've been able to teach them properly and show them the way that they should go. You may look at every success, every achievement, and every act of obedience and say, I have a beautiful relationship with God because of this. Now there are others who are at disadvantages and say, I can tally I can't tally on my hands and my toes the numbers of sins that I've committed that would keep me from God. I have made mistake upon mistake. I have failed. I have sinned. I have chosen everything other than God. I have opposed God. I have covered my eyes, covered my ears, shouted no. I have stood away from him. I've turned away from him. I've walked away from him. I've known that which I should have been doing, and I've done the opposite. My life, my family, my marriage, my job, everything in my life points to a person who does not have a proper relationship with God. Or, if I am clinging on, I am failing. I am running backwards. If you fall into either of those camps the advantaged or the disadvantaged, I want you to know that Paul's message today is for you. It's for you. 
And it's not the most positive message to start. The message begins with the simple, none are righteous. It's a unifying truth in the reality of our despair that apart from God, none is righteous. There is not a person who is truly advantaged. There is not a person who is so far away they cannot be restored. Everyone is in the same state in our life. But for Christ Jesus and but for the reality that Colossians says, Colossians 2.13, I'm just going to read it one more time for you. And you, and the you is to all of us, to all of us, and it's to the state that we were. You who were dead in in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our sins, all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the reality that believers have, that those who are trusting in Christ have, that before Christ you were equal with every other person on this planet. You were equally unrighteous. And what God has done is that he came into the world, he came as the son Jesus Christ so that he could die. You mattered so much to Christ that he came to die for you. And that in dying, to take the penalty of sin that you deserved upon himself. And that in living, to give you new life. So what do we do with this? We take those advantages, we take those disadvantages, and we live for Christ. But at the same time, we do not measure our relationship with Christ by them. Your disadvantages do not make you have a strained relationship with God. God is close to you. Now, the communication may be off, but God does not forsake you because of your mistakes. He draws you closer. He seeks you out. He wants you to return to him. And your advantages, your advantages, as blessed as they are, they do not make you right with him. They are a great grace. It is amazing for those of us who can declare that I have known God always. I can't say that. I cannot say that I have always lived with God in my life. There was a time when I didn't. There was a time that I turned away. I know of others that have been raised in the church that can say that. And the reality is the grace that brought me back that redeemed me, the level of grace it took to redeem me and to grow me in relationship with Christ is the same level of grace that it took to keep you who have always known from sin. We both needed Christ extraordinarily. So hear that. None is righteous. No, not one. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that in spite of of our position. Christ came for us, Christ died for us, and Christ repaired the relationship with us. Just like the kids' stories and mine, we all have something broken. We've all had something broken in our life. And Christ has restored it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your restoration. The restoration that you have given us through your son, Jesus Christ. 
and we know we know that in ourselves that we are we are not righteous and that there is no righteous person except for one who is both God and man Jesus Christ the only son and so we just ask right now that as we have heard of our unrighteousness that we would know of the grace that you have given us at the cross and that we would trust in that grace that we would place our faith in the finished work that you have done and that you would open our eyes to truths and to glories that cannot be seen but by you. Lord, additionally right now, we, we just give this time over to you in which we worship and give back to you. And as we, as we pass around the buckets for offering, we recognize that everything in our life has been given us by you. We pray that you would take it and that you would use it to honor and glorify your name, that you would use it to help us to move and act and bring your praise throughout this whole city and that you would bless this offering and bless all those who we reach through it. Thank you for all that you've given us and all the ways that you have worked to rescue us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, If I do certain things, if I um, do certain traditions or uh, certain things that the church taught me to do, I I would, at the end of my life, I would be good with God. If I do all these things that I taught, that were taught to me in in the church, I would be good. It would be good for me. But the reality is, the truth is, that it doesn't matter, you know, if you're raised in, in, a, in whatever church you're raised in. If you're raised in this church, or if you're raised on the streets of West Allis, or West Milwaukee, or Waukesha, or wherever you come from, the truth of the gospel is that we all need the gospel. The, the truth is that we all need the gospel doesn't matter what church you're raised in or wherever you're raised. Everyone needs the gospel. So please bow your head for the benediction, which comes to you from 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the peace of God himself sanctify you in completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it.